Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. I'm here with my fellow Bureau member, Paul Hartfield, to recollect, to remember, to bring back into the light another half-forgotten countercultural story for the sake of the present, even for the sake of the future. Now, at the Bureau, there's nothing that we like better than a story about obsolete technology. And one such story could have been the story of the vinyl record. After all, in this digital age of downloading an infinite abundance and Spotify playlists, who needs such a complicated physical artefact like a vinyl record? Well, that story would have been told prematurely, would it not? Because we are enjoying, the vinyl record is enjoying a renaissance, and that is amazing. But in the years before the vinyl record, before pressing, the record press, made such things commercially viable and made mass production of records a possibility, there was another way to make a record. It was using something called a recording lathe. Records could be made in real time, one at a time, and then played back on gramophones. The Bureau's main project, the X-Ray Audio Project, tells the story of forbidden music in the Soviet Union in the Cold War era, when bootleggers used recording lathes and X-ray film to make their own records. There is a whole culture, a very small culture, but a dedicated culture of people around the world who still use recording lathes. And we're very pleased that we've got two of them here with us today. You could call them, I suppose, wizards of the recording lathe, sorcerers of the self-made record. They are Mike Dixon. Hello, happy to be here. And Jim McGuinn. Welcome. How's it going? Lathe cutter extraordinaire, right? That's right. Very good. So I'm going to start off with a bit of audio. And I don't think you're going to guess who this is, you guys, but have a go anyway, okay? Well, Michael Dixon, actually, that wasn't a bad guess at all, actually. It wasn't a pope, but it it was actually the Antichrist. Alice the Crowley, recorded in HMV on Oxford Street here back in the, um, I think, 40s. He was enchanting uh, something from his magical language there. Not that you could particularly tell. And I always think when you hear that Crowley's voice is that it's surprisingly high for the great beast. (laughs) You sort of expect it to be down here. But it's not. That was Oscar Crowley. And the reason I'm playing that, of course, is because he was recorded in a recording lathe. And, Michael, you are... Don't get modest now. You probably are the sort of... The premier lathe cutter in America. Is that right? I certainly do a lot with uh, vintage record lathes. Right. So, listen, give us... A definition for people who don't know what we're talking about. What is a recording lathe? A record lathe is the earliest uh, vinyl, well, it's the earliest recording method outside of cylinders. Uh, So you record straight to a vinyl disc uh, using a turntable that takes the audio, turns it into sound waves, and the sound wave is cut into the disc uh, in real time. Right, so... What I often say when talking live is that it's somewhat like a record player in reverse, right? So a record player, the needle reads the grooves in a, a recording lathe or record lathe, as you call it. It writes the grooves. And it doesn't have to be vinyl, does it? That's the point, actually. You can write on many things. Right. Vinyl is sort of the generic term mm. for a record, but most most vintage recording was used, um, or used a uh, lacquer disc, which is mm. a 
basically really thick nail polish type of material, uh, nitrocellulose lacquer. Now you can make records out of all kinds of uh, medium, like x-rays, laser discs, CDs that'll play on your turntable and your CD player, um, plastic picnic plates. I've even made records out of brass drum cymbals. We're going to come back to that one in a minute. Actually, of course, one of the things that Michael mentioned then was the x-ray, and that's, of course, where we started off. And so Radio Paul... You cut onto x-rays, don't you? We do. Yeah. How's that? How does that work? How's that work for you? Um, it's tricky. It's not made to be cut onto. Um, as we were discussing earlier that um, any x-rays after 82, something like that, are uh, polyester-based, so they're really hard to cut onto. But the earlier ones, with a cellulose top, are uh, a lot easier, very soft to cut. And, of course, the reason that we're cutting onto x-ray, we are x-ray cutters rather than... R- lathe cutters like you guys because you're actually experts in the field is because mm-hmm. it's part of this whole project that we've got with x-ray audio which is an investigation of telling the story of the the bootleggers and underground uh, music lovers in the soviet union who whose only way really to uh, share the music that they loved was on an x-ray now michael um why don't we go back to the top then i mean how did you get involved why did you get involved in this slightly obscure obsolete dusty technology well i've been i've been a record collector since i was a kid and uh, i've been in bands since i was a kid and i always loved records i always wanted my music on vinyl but if you want to actually press a record the minimum that you can buy is 500 and usually your investment is a couple thousand dollars all of my bands were really bad so the the idea of trying to sell 500 records just to bring Jim's nodding in. there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Heard a few things. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea of buying 500 records and then selling five of them and sitting on 495 didn't wasn't really all that appealing. Uh, I found out about a guy named Peter King in New Zealand who is kind of the godfather of record lathes. And he's been making short-run records for artists since the 80s. He worked with Donovan, Pavement, the Beastie Boys, all kinds of artists making 20 to 100 copies. And so I got hooked up with him. I started ordering records from him. And at some point I decided, well, maybe I can do this myself. And um, so I started buying old record lathes on eBay, trying to reverse engineer them and found a couple of like-minded people that taught me some things. And eventually the obsession just kind of took hold and now I'm one of the most active people in in the record lathe community. Still in those bands? Still playing in those bands? No, not at all. Dang. (laughs) (laughs) So that's quite interesting though, isn't it? Because then you're actually saying it's not a dead technology at all. It's actually a live technology for the purposes of making short runs. In fact, Jim, just earlier you were talking about you guys actually do this, you've got a business, a very successful business, right? Doing um, short runs, or not so short runs actually sometimes, right, for people in the States. Yeah, that's right. We work a lot with uh, independent bands and record labels. And my job mainly is uh, doing larger run cuts for Mike for either his record label or for orders that we get for bands. And, uh, yeah, it's more about just... um, getting that music out on a physical format for mm. these bands. Well, Mike was saying that there's a sort of economy aspect to it, which is that it's cheaper to do with, cause, but there's also a kind of, this is what occurs to us, there's something rather special, isn't there, about actually a lathe cut record rather than a press record? Yeah, there's definitely a lot more inconsistencies and more love that goes into it that way. But I think also being able to do 50 records instead of 500, you're able to make more interesting packaging you're able to press music that would not be palatable enough to enough people to justify an actual physical um item and so you we get we do a lot of stuff for avant-garde and noise and songwriters that are just kind of starting that don't have a fan base and so they're able to make a physical product that they can sell to their mom and their girlfriends and their handful of fans until they're able to actually build up, you know, enough of a following to press 500 or a thousand. Yeah, and not only is it a physical format, but it's more interesting than a regular 7-inch record or a 12-inch record. We can do square discs, screen-printed discs, all kinds of weird shapes and different uh, different types of grooves and stuff. So. And what are you cutting onto? Mostly uh, polycarbonate, plastic, plexiglass, as most people know it. Yeah. Right, so, um, and that gives you good audio quality as well or does that matter i mean does it, does it well, matter? does the audio quality they, matter 
that doesn't give you nearly as good of audio quality as like a pressed record. Mm-hmm. Um, but audiophiles, people that only care about vinyl for fidelity purposes, are not going to like what we do. But the re- a lot of the records that we make, especially on polycarbonate, sound pretty good. Um, they sound they're they're totally listenable. But it definitely has more pops and crackles. It definitely has a a, a more um, or I guess a smaller frequency range. You don't get quite the high end clarity that you would on a pressed record. But if you can't afford to buy five hundred or a thousand records, then this is the only way that you can actually get your records made right. for a reasonable It's price. a mono cut as well, isn't it? Or you do in stereo. Most of the record, the, the lathes that we use are mono. So talk about the lathes that you use. I mean, um, solar radio, as I mentioned earlier, they, they've, they've got a built-in lathe here. They do lathe cuts here. Um, but that's a very specialist purposes. But you guys are producing quite a lot of lathe cut records. So are you using, where are these lathes come from? Are they all things that you've restored? Yes, most of these are all, we're all used in radio stations back in the 30s and the early 40s before magnetic tape came out. You know, in especially in the U.S., um, every radio station had two record lathes. They would have, because if you're, let's say in Tucson, Arizona, where we're from, you you aren't going to pay somebody to, to research and broadcast international and national news. You're going to get all of your international and national news piped in from New York, but it's 2 o'clock in Arizona when it's five o'clock in New York. So they have to bring it in over the phone lines, record it and then play it back. And the discs at the time would only accommodate 15 or 20 minutes of audio. So they would have to have two of them so they could immediately switch over to a second lathe. Um, but once magnetic tape came in, they became obsolete. They got put in the basement and, um, and got thrown away eventually. Well, we're going to come back to that one as well. I just want to play a little bit of this. playing that is, is that is actually a an x-ray record from the soviet union right and uh i got that record and um the grooves on it are absolutely minute you can barely see them and even though it's pretty crackly and if you heard that coming off a record player it sounds really hot still and the amazing thing about that for us actually was is that with some of the uh, records from the soviet union some of them, a lot of them sound terrible they might sound terrible because they always sounded terrible but they might sound terrible because they've been played to death by people. And that's part of this uh, part of this product, isn't it? Is that it, it's there's something ephemeral about it, more ephemeral than a vinyl record, right? These things they wear out, right? Well, actually, the polycarbonate discs that we that we do don't tend to wear out all that right. that quickly. The the lacquers, which those machines were originally intended to cut, those wear out really quick, uh, probably even quicker than the X-rays because they're very very soft. They were intended to be cut and then immediately plated, have molds made of them, and then put on a press. Um, but but there are definitely some materials like plastic picnic plates that I use sometimes. <laughs> those don't last very long, and there's definitely an ephemeral uh, quality to those. <laughs> so what, So let's run through some of the strange things that you've recorded into apart from... So plastic picnic plates is... That's quite strange. Yeah, plastic pic- picnic plates are sort of the starter... Or at least when I when I first started uh, cutting records, that was kind of the entry. They're really cheap. You can get them at the grocery store for thirty cents a piece. They actually sound pretty good. They have a a pretty high noise floor, so there's a lot of <laughs> underneath them. But the the fidelity is is nice. You can hear a lot of high end, but they do tend to wear out after ten or fifteen plays. And you'd be um, embossing rather than no, no. That's actually cutting. Get, you you, you remove material wow. uh, when you're cutting. You scratch the grooves in without removing material if you're embossing. Right. But with plastic picnic plates, you use the same needles that you would use to cut a uh, a lacquer. And um, so those those are really fun. They're basically like a really low fidelity flexi. Um, then there's CDs. We use the mm-hmm. back of CDs. Um, you can fit about three minutes of groove audio and about 40 minutes of digital audio. So if you have a band that you want to 
put your album on a CD and then have a bonus track, a live thing or an acoustic. Those actually sound really good. For Mm. whatever reason, the with with embossing, which is kind of what we do with the polycarbonate, we're just scratching the grooves in and not removing material. Um, the the larger the groove or the the further out you go, if you go out to a twelve inch, your fidelity is going to suffer. Um, and the smaller that you get, the better it sounds, which is the opposite of a pressed record. On a pressed record, the closer you get to the center label, the lower the fidelity is. Um, but with the CDs, they they actually sound really good because the polycarbonate that the CDs are made out of is very very uh, optically clear and a very high quality um, plastic. Yeah, we like that. So hold on to your CDs because you can they're going to get a second life as a record. <laughs> um, so okay, what else? I mean, you mentioned earlier. Um, is it a hi hat? Did I hear you say a hi hat? Yeah, I made some records for the drummer for the Melvins, mm-hmm. um, uh, a guy named Dale Crover. We made uh, drum cymbals for him. They're mm-hmm. brass discs that have uh, one one song on the on the outside and then can be used as drum cymbals. They're not the best sounding records or drum cymbals for that. <laughs> that matter. was a whole different process <laughs> to do those. Yeah. But that, yeah, so how did you do that? Yeah. That's come on. That's the, that's not easy. You can't do that with a with a normal curling head, right? No, well, yeah, with a normal, not with a normal needle. No, mm-hmm. um, but it took it took took a lot of work, and uh, we ended up using uh, personal lubricant, as they as oh, yeah. they they say at the drugstore. <laughs> Manslide. Uh, Is it Manslide? Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. it, it, well, yeah. We what, what did we use? Um, it uh, was uh, KY jelly. That's right. Yep. <laughs> so we yeah. we use some KY jelly to to, and that really uh, <clears throat> improved the fidelity of those. Um, again, that, I love that, it. I love it. So it's a combination <laughs> of KY jelly and a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And some brass. A lot of love went into those. <laughs> <laughs> it up a little bit. Yeah. hot. <laughs> I'm assuming so. After all that, Christ, was he happy? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, we didn't hang out after I made them, but he seemed to be. Well, there's because there you had a pot of KY jelly on you. Maybe you he was definitely happy off. with that that portion of it. <laughs> Good, but that but that definitely uh, made them sound a lot slicker. Yeah, we like it. We like it. Like it. What else? Uh, what chocolate. Chocolate. Okay, you've done the chocolate. It's you who did the chocolate record. There have been other people that have done the chocolate. That that you have to do through a molding process, like you would make a like a chocolate candy. Um, I used a just a plate from or a, a stamper from record production uh, to make oh, so that's that. a press record. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I took yeah. the the mold that would be made to make a press record. Mm. I filled that with chocolate. Got it. And um, yeah, uh, laser discs. Mm-hmm, we right. there's a there's a band in the states called Doctor Dog that's that's pretty big. And um, we did a Christmas record for them that was 100% upcycled. No new material was used whatsoever. Uh, we used old laser discs from, I guess you get you call them boot sales, here garage sales in the in the U.S. Uh, I used the um, the X-ray cutting needles from the guy in Russia that we were talking about earlier. Um, paint came from uh, garage sales and thrift stores. Great. And um, I even took all the machines down to a local bar in Tucson that uses uh, 100% solar power. So we even there wasn't even any new electricity that was that's used amazing. to make them. Yeah, well done. That's really amazing, actually. Now, did we hear a rumor? I don't believe, didn't believe it, but somebody's made a record with ice. Is that true? Oh yeah, the oh, shout true. out louds. Was that was that who it was? Uh, a, a band on Merge Records out of the U.S. Rele- they released a mold, like a, a rubber mold uh, that you could pour your water into, freeze it, and then then play. Did you hear it? Uh, I've seen the video. It's, I mean, you Sounded could hear cool. it. So, yeah. Sounds cool. Right, um, Paul, mm. the other thing which, I mean, we haven't done any of that sort of stuff, actually, mm. but, I mean, um, cutting onto x-rays, one of the things which strikes me about it is that audio quality is not so important. You can't get very good audio qualities, but that big guitar track that we heard earlier it sounded pretty amazing, didn't it, after all this time? Well, Do you we, feel we, that the Soviet bootleggers, they, they could get really good quality, couldn't they, at times? Yeah, well, it's obviously variations but this guy was the good guy we don't know who did it but that is really hot but we were saying earlier that the x-rays there's the we need the dirt we need the the background hiss because that's why i haven't this is my excuse researched so much into the science of it because i don't want to get it too good because we've done a couple of good 
live gigs and it's cut really well and people are sort of less than wowed. <laughs> they actually the want it to jump. They want it to sound bad. Well, that's a really good so point. There's yeah, a so fine line between, yeah. you know, as we were saying, is it an object or is it a fidelity thing? It's a, well, we got, you must find this all the time, and of course we'll talk a bit about your other work, education, and all the other things that you do in a bit. But you know, we do these live events when I tell the story of the Soviet bootleggers, and then we <clears throat> show people how to make an X-ray record. We use a 1957 MSS lathe, which the BBC uh, would have used. There it is. And um, the the magical thing, really, actually, in those live events is people love to see the process, right? Um, and, we, you know, we project it up so they can see the cutting and the, the swarf and all the spooling and stuff. And it's a sort of, there is something alchemical about it. And what we found is that people love to see it, particularly younger people love to see it, right? Because they've grown up in a world where music is completely ephemeral. It's out there somewhere in a string of ones and zeros in the ether. So there is something rather special about that, isn't there? Just the witnessing of this process. Yeah, and one of the main things that I do is go out to events and festivals, a lot of times for corporate companies, and go to their parties and their their VIP events and things like that and show people how it's done. I'll be cutting records there live on site for whatever band is playing and kind of giving them the five-minute elevator pitch as it is about how this, this works because I'm, I've been doing this for 15 years now I know how it works scientifically, but I still don't really know how it works. You know, <laughs> uh, it's still, it's, it's black magic it's as black opposed magic. to science. Mm. And so if somebody can come out, they've never seen it done at an event or a party. And so when they get to see it, they're just like, what? It, it blows their mind. Yeah. I mean, there's a, go ahead. yeah, there's a good deal of showmanship that goes into mm. it as well. Like we go out there with lab coats and we, give them that whole pitch and make it an experience for mm. them, you know, something that they remember. And people, yeah, people really appreciate that. Yeah, no, I, I think that there is something theatrical about it, isn't there, as well? Yeah. And uh, and um, and I think it is this thing, isn't it, is that we, we live in an age, which I love, but it's an age, it's a digital age, isn't it, of kind of a, abundance in music, freedom in music, and you can get everything immediately and as much well, as you want. And this is a completely different thing because it's one, everything's one-off, isn't it? Yeah. And nowadays, everything's on your cell phone, whether it's news or uh, music or the weather or whatever. And there's, there's to some degree, a, a backlash to that, where there are people that don't want to have easy access to everything. Mm, right. Because the things that are very easy to access are not really that valuable. You didn't right. put any money or any time or any effort into getting them, so who cares? And I think part of the vinyl resurgence is, is a lot about that. It's about the social currency of a record collection. It's about collections defining you as a person. And, you know, if especially if you live in a in a city like London or, or New York, you don't have a lot of space. So the things that you bring into your space that take up room, they're obviously important to you. And when you walk into somebody's house, the first thing you do is look around and see, okay, what is it? Oh, you're into records? Let me see what those are. Oh, you've got this? I have this, or I used to have this, or I want to hear this. Let's, let's, let's listen to it. Right, exactly. So, and just to return to what you were saying earlier, Paul, I mean, about um, when we do this, that the audio <clears throat> quality is never going to be good, but you don't want it to be too good because that actually reveals the process, doesn't it, in some way? And when people watch and listen, that's actually the contrast, isn't it, with this perfect uh, crystal digital sound? Yes. Good. That was the right <laughs> answer. <laughs> um, so... You just slightly thrown me then. I needed a sort of <laughs> a, 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 a swallow for well, a minute. No, swallow no, for a minute. Absolutely correct. Um, and I think also, uh, you know, you know, you mentioned then, Jim, the the, the, the theatrical aspect. Of yeah. It. And these machines themselves, I mean, they're big, bulky things. Aren't right. They? Like, they're not. They're not mobile phones. <laughs> yeah. It's not something them. you can go and pick up at your, you know, your local store. It's something that is very specialty. Something that had to have a lot of work go into it. That's eighty years old. <laughs> yeah. That, it's eighty years yeah, old. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. It's a. Uh, it's pretty old technology, and a lot of work went into repurposing it for what we do now. Mm. And actually, um, as you probably know as, as, as well as we do, moving these things around <laughs> isn't so easy. And our, no. ours, ours looks a lot heavier than yours does. That's uh, about 47 the, kilos. 42. 42 kilos. Okay, yeah. yeah. Ours is about 100, 100 pounds, 120 pounds. <laughs> Dang. It's Dang. definitely a two-person lift operation. 
Right, yeah. So we, we're always running into problems with Eurostar and aeroplanes and shipping and stuff with other things. Um, so there's something rather beautiful about them too, isn't there? So, so you've been doing all sorts of educational work. You've been doing your, you know, your restoration work. You've got a business which is doing lathe cuts. You also do, I suppose, what you might call vinyl art, don't you? These rather beautiful editions. Tell us about that. Yeah, when I make, I make a lot of different uh, vinyl records out of different formats and different mm-hmm. materials like the picnic plates and whatever. But I also love to use trash and upcycle it and turn it into uh, record art, record sleeves. I, I go out to thrift stores and uh, garage sales and um, dumpsters and try to find any any sort of material or paper that I think is interesting and turn it into um, vinyl vinyl uh, covers and sleeves. And uh, we'll put some links to Michael's websites later. You can check it out. Rather wonderful stuff. Um, we did meet somebody, or Alex's friend actually, who's uh, who cut record on road signs. Have you done that? No. Never heard about that. Yeah, you know... Kind of jealous, actually. You know, like this sort of speed limit signs and stuff like that, yeah. They didn't sound too bad. I don't know whether the British ones are any different than the American ones. Oh, I'll... Well, because the the sticker... The the vinyl that they use to print on the signs is is vinyl, which can be cut. Mm. I had never actually put those two things together. Damn it. Damn, we got him! We (laughs) got him! We got Michael Dixon! (laughs) I know he's going to be straight back in nicking the... Road signs and took some. If it's already if it's already been done, I don't need to do it. Uh, but I've I also heard a story, and I've never been able to find any. This is you know urban legend passed down through record cutters of yore. But supposedly there was a guy in New York that went out to um, escalators with the rubber um, grips, you know the hmm. the and cut grooves into the uh, the handles of the escalator. So it was a big long rubber belt and cut grooves into it sort of gorilla style i i hope it's made up because i really want to do it as an art project (laughs) and i can't find any any sort of uh proof that it ever existed right so if anybody finds proof that it ever existed just keep it to yourself because i'm going to do it and call it my own thing excellent okay well we got you on record now (laughs) recorded that onto uh with a lathe um let's look back a bit so let's have a listen to this Hello darling, this is Lord Clinton. I have been with you in two or three forms, your thoughts, in letters and in dreams. And now something very different. My voice is with This is Monday the 27th of August and my second day of leave in Jerusalem. My last away from you and home. Although the release scheme is still an uncertainty, I still have my hopes of being at Christmas for good. In the meantime, I have other hopes, that is, of being with you on a short leave, and so break the monotony of these years of parting. Be ready for me, kick at the ladder, and roll in the barrel. Won't be long now. God bless you. I love you. Keep smiling. All will be well soon. Give my love to all at home. Yours for always, Bill. That was Bill, um, vo- the voice from Jerusalem to Dorothy. That was a Voices of the Forces record recorded on a lathe back in Second World War. We, ne- we don't know whether uh, Bill ever did get back for Christmas or not, mm. so there's a sort of uh, a poignancy in that. And I just wanted to, I thought we could talk for a little bit. I was trying to find the Voices of the Forces record here. but Yeah, I have, I have a lot of different, got different formats and stuff. Those, yeah, yeah. So... Obviously, that's very poignant, isn't it? You know, that's a, that's a soldier uh, in the Second World War. You know, been able, but but actually, something rather beautiful about it, which is that he could send home a message of his voice rather than just a letter. And that stuff, I think, probably the technology for all that really kind of probably came out of America, didn't it? With the whole voice booths, you know, whether they're the automated ones where you could just uh, stick your money in and make a recording of your voice or. Interestingly, we found out later that actually he was being recorded by somebody there on a lathe. And the reason being is is that the person was there not just to operate the lathe, but to make sure he, he didn't inadvertently give away any any, oh. any, any, <laughs> any, top, secret. any top secret information, you know, just by saying exactly where they were or something like right. that. that so, so they were always monitored in the Voices of the Voices stuff. But um, just talk to us, Michael, about that, about that whole amazing 
you know, voiceograph thing in, in the States, you know, where I think it starts where it started. But it came here too, but um, it probably started in the States, didn't it? Yeah, I well, I'm not exactly sure where it, where it started, but mm. I definitely have some blank records of those. Mm. And in the U.S., uh, if you were deployed on a battleship out in the Pacific, they would have a record lathe down in the commissary. You could buy a disc, and it came in one of these manila envelopes that had a little picture of a sailor leaning against a palm tree right. because we all know that that was what war is all about, right? <laughs> and um, you would record onto what they call a fiber-based. This disc is metal-based. The The fiber-based discs were basically cardboard with lacquer on top of them. They, they didn't last, and you usually can't play them. Um, but I also have a couple that I found that were sponsored by Pepsi. Mm-hmm. And so they have a big Pepsi label on them, and they would they would give them to the armed forces here, let your, your people record on them. Not only does it represent Pepsi to the, the people uh, recording it, but also to the families back home. And so I, I found some pretty interesting blank discs and how they kind of uh, used advertise or advertised on them. Right. So same thing here. I mean, they had them in department stores and it would start off. I think, the, you know, there'd be a kind of uh, a message from the department store at the beginning mm-hmm. or end or something. And then you'd put your personal message in there. So, there's, so it was sort of advertising medium as well. Um, but the uh, the automated machines, they were kind of rather beautiful things, weren't they? And, um, you know, you could go in and put, you know, I guess 10 cents or a quartering or something right and make a record of your voice yeah there and those are still sort of around there's a there's actually a guy in uh maryland that i know named bill bowman and he restores all of those machines he works on the ones that jack white has and and he he's he sold them to slash and drew carey and quentin tarantino and all all these celebrities that have them in their houses but they're really delicate Mm. I, i don't really understand how they're able to do that without somebody they're monitoring, you know, especially at Slash's house party. <laughs> uh, how, do, how does that continue to work? But the, it's a, you know, the, they were doing it 75, 80 years ago, and uh, they're they're really beautiful machines. They look like a phone booth mm. that you walk in, you've got your guitar kind of snugged up mm. against you and and uh, record your song or record your, your spoken word thing. We did a program with Alan Dean, um, and I think one of those recordings is his. He's a he's a broadcaster here, and his his interest actually is not so much in the technology, but his interest is in the voice and the the stories, if you like, that were on them. Because he made this amazing point, which I suppose is is true, is that for many people uh, in the thirties, forties, fifties, they'd never heard their own voice. Right, this was the first time they'd heard their own voice. So again, there was something quite magical about it, wasn't there? Actually, that you could go into a booth. You could put put a money in and start to talk, and you had a record of your own voice. Yeah, and that's kind of the idea behind a lot of these gigs that we do, where we go out to places. We'll actually set up microphones and uh, record people straight to disc, you know, with their guitar or whatever instrument they have. Their kids singing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. It's that same idea of, like, them getting to hear themselves on a record. Right, right. And how do they respond? Yeah, they're usually floored by it, man. <laughs> yeah, not, not that anybody has not heard their own voice these days, but the fact that it's going straight onto a piece of plastic and then being played back on a turntable in a in you know a real physical process and not just a digital process is is pretty mind blowing, especially to you know young kids, teenagers, and then even older people who experience that but never actually had their voice on a on a record. Yeah, not many people have been on a record. Not many people have been on a record, still right. And um, Paul, that's actually when we record the people on X-ray with the artists themselves. They're often quite delighted, aren't they? Even and these are people who've heard themselves many, many times, right? But there's something about it, isn't there? Yeah, it's, it's got nostalgia, instant nostalgia, and it's it's something they've never heard before. It's a really to them, it's still magic. They're still looking at it like like the kids do. It's like, well, I just played that, and here it is again, coming off this bit of bit of plastic with the guy in the corner I think also let's have a little uh, see if we can find it here let's have a listen to one which you recorded in Cardiff last year and he never worked with me again lonesome are the words the words I think to myself since you said goodbye lonesome are the dreams 
Dreams of you left shattered on that distant night Lonesome go the tears Lonesome go the others Lonesome are the ways goodbye That's Gruff Reese from Super Furry Animals. And um, I can see Michael and uh, Jim, they're sort of they're assessing that technically. Audio <laughs> quality. And Paul's like swallowing yeah. next to me. Um, yeah, what's your comments on that? Yes, yes thanks, Stephen. <laughs> I mean, it's, it sounds about standard for an x-ray. No, you can hear everything. Yep. You can hear his voice. You can hear the guitar. It's, uh, uh, x-rays are not a great medium for, uh, for transferring high fidelity audio mm-hmm. but it's it's still a beautiful I think for certain songs it really does add and I think mm. Griff was really happy with that because it's you know his voice out front sounded clear and crisp and everything mm. and then you play it back and it's just got these accidents and this this grit that is, mm. is still we all love it I don't know why we love it but why um, do we love it yeah why do we love it no idea because it's inaccessible to a lot of people I mean very few people in the world can make a record on an x-ray and so, because it's it's so be, everybody knows it's difficult. Otherwise, everybody would be doing it. So, the fact that it even actually exists, that it actually can be done, you you forget all of the the, the surface noise. You see, I, I'm going to disagree with you on that because I think that I, a lot of that's true. But I I think the surface noise in this case adds to it in some way. Because what it actually does, so somebody like Griff, uh, you know, in, in, who came down and recorded that, he's heard himself a million times in a million different ways. He's made vinyl records as well. But um, A, it's one take. Any, any fuck-ups, they're down, right? That's one thing. But I think it also kind of it disembodies the performance and the voice somehow, and it makes it sound out of time. You know, people often say... Oh my God! It makes me sound like my grandfather, or or it makes me sound like a record which was recorded in the thirties. And there's there's a sort of dimension of that mm. which we like, no? Yeah. That, yeah. No, I I would agree. There there is definitely something nostalgia nostalgic mm. about the the noise, the pop, the crackle, the hiss. I mean, I have a lot of I've we've made records for literally thousands of bands over the last decade, right? And I've had multiple bands that came to me and said. I like the sound of this better than our digital master. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something mm-hmm. kind of soothing to have this like white noise in the mm-hmm. back, almost like rain or like mm-hmm. the ocean. Mm-hmm. It's like it's not that you don't hear it or you don't notice it. It's just kind of like it adds and it. I mean, yeah, you can hear the voice, you can hear all the instruments, but it's like this extra layer mm-hmm. of like washy sound that it's kind of soothing to a lot of people. It is soothing, and that was soothing. Which we, and we, I can tell you that we needed soothing when we were recording Griff Reese yeah. because uh, we were doing it we had an exhibition with X-Ray Audio in Cardiff and you know it was part of the whole show it was the opening night and it was a group show so there was we were just one part of it the Diffusion Festival and it was a big party so there was about 600 people there and uh, we got in contact with Griff from Super Furry Animals and said you know will you come and do this and he was like that sounds really cool great I'll be down he lives in Cardiff you know so so um, we're, we're sort of setting up the lathe. I'm sure you've had this experience yourself. We're setting up the lathe in the afternoon just before sound <laughs> check. <laughs> I already know where this is going. Every show. And uh, it didn't work. It wasn't working. Uh, and uh, the head had blown, right? And then, um, but of course, you know, we're anxious types. We always take a spare head. Paul put the spare head on. The spare head was blown. Griff's on his way down. You know, at this point, it's too late to kind of cancel. There's a whole show b- built on this opening thing, right? Okay. Fortunately, this is a you know, uh, is that in the exhibition itself we build this uh, room which looks like a bootlegger's room in the 1950s in the Soviet Union, and we actually put one of our one of our lathes in there. And I remembered. Yeah, they call it the C team. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's got a head on it. So we had Paul had to climb into the ex- the exhibition and remove this head. It was our last chance, and he fitted it just as Griff 
walk through the door. It was literally that time. And it dropped it and it worked. It was hideous. So we needed beautiful, but we needed soothing. Then I'm, so I'm sure you've had it. Come on, you guys, tell us oh. some horror stories. Oh, Lathe man. horror stories. So <laughs> we, we have a company called Mobile Vinyl Recorders, and that's the company that goes out for corporate events, cuts records, you know, live on site at parties and, and festivals, and the, without fail. An hour before the show, no, an hour before doors open, nothing works ever. Focus, and at this point, Steven. it's just kind of this Focus. weird joke. You're like, you know, the first 50 times, you're, you know, you're about to poop your pants. And then after a while, you're just like, uh, it'll, it'll work. Like, I'm just going to, I'm not going to get stressed out it's about like it. Just, because yeah, every yeah. single time, as soon as the doors open, all of a sudden, everything works. And I don't know if it's... The gods, the god of the lathe, making sure you don't develop some sort of hubris. But um, yeah, it's without fail. It's it's always uh, a total disaster until right before it goes, and then something always. I we've we have never once. I'm knocking on wood, by the way. Uh, we we have never once totally um, let anybody down. But um, if you don't mind going back to what we were talking about just a second ago, mm -hmm. I have a, an interesting story about kind of the uh, the additions that happen with the record. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is a little bit off topic because it's about wire recorders. Are mm -hmm. you familiar with wire recorders? We yeah, we do. We love them. So for those that aren't familiar, it's a, it's a spool of hair-thin stainless steel wire that was the predecessor to magnetic tape. It, it worked in very much the same way. It, it magnetized the wire. They, they never really sounded that great. They didn't really take off, um, but the, they did make quite a few of them. And when I was first starting to get into the record late, I found one of these things. And because I was into obsolete technology, I bought one, got it working, and recorded uh, four or five artists directly to the wire, the wire recorder and then released a 7-inch of the recordings. But I called it a collaboration with the wire recorder. So it was uh, four artists collaborate with this antique technology because every record or every song sounded completely different than the next. One one of them would have uh, the wire stretching out, so it, mm. it would be really pitchy and warbly. One of them, uh, you would hear the whatever was the the choir that was recorded on it in 1941. You would hear that coming through, kind of bleeding through the. Right, right. Um, it was it's still on there, so it's it's palimpsest with the layers of recording on it. Yeah, in fact, the uh, it was with a uh, a band called Bishop Allen from New York, and they had a song called Ghost, and I think it, and it was recorded over the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, and <laughs> it didn't completely erase it, so you'd hear <laughs> as they're singing a song about a ghost, and it sounds like a ghost coming through it, and then. And this was totally unintentional, but I did a, a song for a, a guy named Paleo, and the song was called Jessica's Wedding. And as I was digitizing it, I, I walked out of the room as it was digitized into the computer, and I came back. And what I didn't realize was that I was recording over a, an, a rec, uh, like an audio letter from a family to their relatives across the country wishing them, um, you know... Uh, wishing them happy anniversary, a 40th anniversary. So they're talking about their 40th anniversary and it's tacked on to mm. a song about a wedding. There, there were so many kind of weird coincidences mm. with that record and it's available on Spotify. If you want to look it up, it's called <laughs> uh, artists record or artists collaborate with a wire recorder. Nice Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. That reminded me actually, because um, of course with wax cylinders, the, uh, they were reusable. You shave the wax shave off them around. Down, right? And uh, I remember Alex saying that, um, Quite often, you'd get a thin layer of what was underneath if it hadn't been shaved clean. Well, yeah, so, you uh, you probably didn't get to shave them that many times, so the 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 shallower you went, the more. Yeah, you have to use a sort of use a sensitive bick rather, <laughs> rather than a cutthroat. You get a bit of uh, a bit of grinning through. Any other uh, obsolete recording devices that you've used? Well, I collect uh, toys that are based on uh, vinyl technology. So, like the CNC, which in the U.S. we call it the cow says moo. It's a, you know, you pull down a handle and, and point it at the cow or the, the rooster. And then it says, the cow says, moo. The rooster says, cock a doodle doo. Those are, those have a little tiny record in them. The, mm. a lot of the talking dolls from the 1940s mm. and 50s, those all have um, little vinyl records in them. Um, I, I love all of the sort of toy technology that mm. was, that was trying to incorporate this 
this the little talking robots, things like that. You're a fan of toys, aren't you? Like all of you. Yeah, Have you got any collection. strange um, recording devices? No, I haven't. I've just got the um, standard Walkman set. We've got about 12 Walkmans. Um, what else I suppose we got? they're obsolete technology these days, aren't they? They've yeah, just come just back. And those, again, reissued tapes coming out again, isn't it? Um, just got a nice plastic record deck. I saw, saw that, that one, I didn't you? see that. that, yeah, that was, yeah. That's a very that's classy very little nice. number. I just started working again. Well, that's I've got nice. that magnetic disc recorder, but I don't... Oh, I have one of those, the yeah. CD Play Talk. Yeah. They record to an 8-inch magnetic tape. Oh, no, this disc. is a 12-inch one, and actually, oh, really? we record it, but I've never actually... Should, nah, if only there's more time, I'm sure you'll be able to fix it. Well, <laughs> you, so buy an 8-inch uh, floppy disk from mm-hmm. the early 80s, the computer recording disks. You can use that. Why didn't I think of that? I've got some of those. You've got some of those. Oh, there we go. There we go. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. So there's no holy grail, uh, uh, Michael, that you're still got to get your hands on. No, not really. Some obsolete recording device. We did. Um, we oh, wait. Go, uh, huh. I, I do want to talk about this for just a second. It's. I Don't will never go. have one. Go on. Uh, uh, but it was the magnetophone, which was the original Nazi uh, tape recorder, because the Nazis invented magnetic tape. Mm. Um, I want to give a shout out to the Pavic Museum in Minneapolis. Uh, that they have the original magnetophone that a guy named Jack Mullen brought back from Berlin, reverse engineered, and figured out how to use and worked with Ampex tape to build the first magnetic tape uh, wow. reel-to-reel. Wow. I would love to have a magnetophone, but I think there were four <laughs> of them in the world. Nice. And uh, as far as they're I know, there's only one by, that still works. by Nazi collectors, Nazi memorabilia collectors. Probably, but that's not really my, that's not my focus. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really more into the audio side of it, <laughs> just for anybody listening. <laughs> I think we understood that. Um, we've never seen them, actually, but there were, of course, there were some very strange um, recording devices, homemade stuff quite often, but built by, um, you know, mad scientist types in the Soviet Union, often using... Um, film, um, as in oh. movie film, yeah, with uh, complicated uh, mm. uh, uh, re- using vis- uh, video film, right? Recording but they but they were cutting film. grooves into it. Um, you know what? I don't. Yes, they were cutting grooves yeah. into it. Yeah, that's the, actually co- quite complicated devices, amazing devices. There was a mass-produced one. Uh, can't remember what it was called. I think it's like I, I can't remember what it's called, but it, it, they definitely did make them. Mm. Uh, Grooves cut onto belts yeah. of, of film. The tragedy in the Soviet Union, um, you know, like so many other things, really, was that those things would have been developed a lot further, but the inventors and the scientists were and the killed. innovators were <laughs> invariably shot. Um, you know, like there's a whole uh, thing about Soviet electronic instruments. Um, they, they were way ahead of the world. Oh, synthesizers and synthesizers and, and all guitars. sorts of strange stuff. You know, like the the AMC that Artemiev used for the Solaris soundtrack. That was an optical synthesizer where it was covered in ash, a, a glass plate covered in ash, and you drew onto it, yeah. and it yeah. made noise. And they actually built two or three of those, I think. But the the guy who invented that, um, I think he actually invented it in the 30s. Artemiev recorded it in the 60s. The the guy basically had to be very quiet about it and stay underground and couldn't tell anybody about it because he would have been persecuted. Oh. Uh, so there's lots of stuff out there, aren't there? You know, amazing, amazing things. So what's next for you? As you guys, last time we were in touch, you were actually in town. In fact, you nearly had a uh, recording disaster because you got in contact with me and asked me if you could borrow one of our heads. Oh yeah, and I was. You, then you shot off to Paris. So presumably that worked out, did it? Yeah, I was on tour with uh, one of the artists that na- that I work with, named Michael Now, and uh, we were after every show, they would get everybody out of the club, and five people would get a uh, private encore, where they would request a song from him. He'd play it acoustic straight into the record lathe, and then they'd walk away with the one copy of that. And when we first got here, I found out that the uh, that my cutter head had blown. And so, um, sorry, I'm laughing. Yeah, no, no, you, you feel it. And and I also brought a spare, and the, the spare sounded horrible. Uh, luckily, I was able to take the spare, take it completely apart, and uh, and fix the problem with it. Uh, but it was definitely one of those oh shit moments. And um, 
Yeah, but the rest of the tour went great. So we need to sit Michael with us next time, Paul. Yeah, <laughs> he can fix anything. He can fix anything. Well, actually, we did. We did get the old Russian guy to fix. We did. He Saint Petersburg. Yeah, yeah, we actually found somebody who could rewind a head mm-hmm. an hour before a show. That's not easy in Saint Petersburg. <laughs> no, I'm <laughs> sure. <laughs> there was one guy there who could do it. Funnily enough, uh, just uh, what popped up on on Instagram earlier, and um, maybe you saw it. Do you know Birdshit Records? I don't think so. They're, they're based here in Manchester, actually, and um, the guy's a is a lathe cutter. Oh, his name's John Birdshit. <laughs> I think I, I think I'm friends with him. Actually, you must be friends with him. Yeah. Anyway, he's just uh, restored this thing. Oh, Presto yeah. K9. And uh, yeah, well, that's actually two eight Presto eight ends. That was the one that was used at the uh, Nuremberg trials, right? That's yeah. right, yeah. yeah. So for, yeah. obviously this is radio, so people can't see what I'm showing, Michael. Uh, it's this is an it's image beautiful. Of, uh, it's a, it's I was really bummed that I couldn't buy this thing, by the way. <laughs> I, I didn't know how to get it, so get it overseas. We've aroused some, un, some, je- some unwholesome <laughs> emotions in Michael Dixon there. Um, just looking at it, it looks beautiful, and it's uh, a double lathe, so it's two layers, one next to each other with various things, and um, Michael is now going to explain, and it is, you're absolutely right, it was used at the Nuremberg Trials to record testimonies, it's been restored by um, the guy from Birchett Records, it looks beautiful, but you're going to tell us now, uh, Michael, why there is such thing as a double lathe. Uh, well, so, um, if you're recording a speech or a performance, you're only going to get 20 minutes per side maximum even when they were using 16 inch discs because they were spreading the grooves out much further because the grooves were three times as wide as a modern record so if you want a continuous recording that doesn't um that doesn't have a three minute gap or you don't want to have to stop the speaker and say wait we got to switch the disc because it takes three or four minutes to switch the disc and move the head back over and start it recording then you have to have two lathes and so a lot of times in radio stations, they would have a console that would have two different lathes built in. An interesting thing about that is usually one lathe would cut from the inside out and the other lathe would cut from the outside in. So you would start cutting from the outside like a normal record plays. You would be recording and over the course of that recording, you would start to lose high end. And you wouldn't really notice it because it would be a very mm-hmm. s- gradual change. But if you started the next record and all of a sudden you had all that high end back, it would it would kind of jolt the listener and they'd be like, they wouldn't know what had happened, but they knew something had happened. So you would cut from the out from the outside in like a regular record. The next one would cut from the inside out and you would slowly get that high end back and you wouldn't actually notice the the fact that it had been gone. That's clever. So um, so you end up with two or more discs with mm-hmm. the whole performance or speech or whatever it is on it. And then what would happen to the disc then? I mean, how do you sort of play those back continuously? Or Well, usually they would they they would play them back on a double uh, playback uh, right. system. And and most of the, the double recording lathes had playback tone arms. Uh-huh. So they functioned as playback and cutting. Um, and they but, would, they would, would they automatically uh, start? So would there be an overlap or, well, or would they? You would definitely have to. It, it's kind of like a DJ does now. Mm-hmm. You would get to the, you would get to the point where the second, second disc started. And then as soon as your cue that the other disc was ending, you would immediately switch the amplifier over and start the, the disc. And it, you could, you could hear it a lot of times, but if you were really good, you could, you could nail it where there wasn't really much of a gap. So check it out. It's Birdshit Records and on Instagram. It's a rather wonderful, beautiful thing. And obviously an historical piece of kit oh, used yeah. at the Nuremberg Trials, right? Speaking and of Nazis. It's my favorite lathe. The the one that he has, and he has two of them. I have never seen a console that fits two of those lathes, but it is by far my favorite of all of the machines that were made. You were chasing that one too, right? I was. I saw it. It was really cheap for what it was, but I think it was over, I think it was here in the UK someplace or no no it was in it was in uh, Germany but it's so big and heavy I mean just those just the lathe outside of the cabinet weighs 150 200 pounds and then you add the cabinet and you add two of them the that whole thing probably weighs eight or nine hundred pounds so uh, I wasn't I wasn't in a place in my life where I could <laughs> negotiate the shipping and the freight or something like that but I was was admiring it from afar. Now, if you wanted to know uh, much more about lathes, and 
Michael, of course, too, there is, of course, apart from his own sites, there is the Secret Society of Lathe Trolls. Now, I'm guessing, Michael, and Jim, too, I'm guessing, are you, you're, you're a big part of that site, are you, you guys, or contributors? Not so much Jim, but I definitely, mm. I, I definitely am. I'm one of the moderators on there. Um, I'm good friends with Steve Espinola, the guy that kind of runs it and moderates it. Um, it's a, there's a lot of information. A lot of it's somewhat disjointed. Not all of it's accurate. Not all of it's very nice. It's a very typical sort of technical forum. There's a lot of people on there that are just don't have a lot of social skills. And uh, so it's 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 somewhat hard to navigate. Um, but there is definitely a lot of information on there. Well, obviously, we're going to post a link on Secret Literal to this podcast so you can hear Michael telling you that you're talking, talking <laughs> trash. Talking, talking. And you know who I'm talking about, <laughs> Todd. <laughs> Uh, it's, actually, Todd, Todd got banned, so you probably won't. <laughs> Shade. <laughs> well, it has got a, uh, a, a wonderful, I think, a sort of uh, nerdy, geeky thing to it. And it is a nerdy, geeky subject, isn't it? But at the same time, it's a wonderful subject, so why not? Right? It, it is definitely a nerdy, geeky. Uh, <laughs> for But what's what's interesting, so my, my main thing these days is to train people and to restore the equipment and sell it to people that want to get into it. When I started 10 or 15 years ago, it was people that, are, that were into it for the tech. Mm. The, the vinyl resurgence thing had not really taken off yet. Um, so it was very technically minded, sort of awkward, weird, mostly guys, sorry, um, that, that didn't have a lot of social skills. Now, the people that I, that I work with are mostly just artists and musicians that, mm. like, I want to make records for my band, mm -hmm. and they're really well-adjusted and very nice. <laughs> I, I, I have a thing in Tucson every uh, two or three times a year called Lathe Cut Camp, where people come from all over the world to learn how to operate the machines and cut their own music and kind of learn about the science of it. And almost everyone that's ever come to them, and I've had 11 or 12 of them at this point, has been really nice and well-balanced. But then you get into, and it's like any other corner of the internet, you get into the, the forum, and then you get the, the weirdos. I'm looking at Jim. Jim looks very well just in a nice... Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. <laughs> I'm more of the, uh, more of the artist, uh, music type, rather I, than the technical... Uh, <laughs> Jim is my oldest, youngest employee. He's been working for me since he was, what, 18? Yeah, right out of high school. And, uh, you know, yeah, and... He didn't come into it from a technical standpoint. He was like, "Oh, cool! I like records. Yeah, I'll, I'll come and I'll do this instead of wait instead of washing dishes at the restaurant." <laughs> yeah, man, I like music. I like records. This seems cool. Paul, Paul's quite well adjusted too. Um, most days, well, yeah, most days. Yeah. Um, but actually, you know, uh, long may it continue in a way. Actually, because it is there is something wonderful, and certainly where we are now. I mean, in a way, not just Soho Radio, but uh, So itself. It is the sort of one of the epicenters of the whole vinyl uh, revolution, Paul, with Vinyl Factory and Around the Corner and stuff, isn't it? Yeah. So what's next for you? Um, mobile Vinyl Recorders is is doing quite a few things where we may be um, cutting records at the Nashville Football Club. Mm -hmm. the, they, they've got a new soccer team uh, that's opening in Nashville, and they want us to be part of their... Um, oh, what do you... What do you call the the things that like the, their tradition? Tradition, yeah. not gimmick, man. Their tradition. Tradition. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> tradition. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, at, we'll basically cut records of every goal that the that the home team. So, whenever somebody starts breaking for the for the goal, we start the disc. Wow. And if they make it, we keep recording. If they don't, we lift it up. And then <laughs> what a great idea! That's yeah, so amazing. good. That's you know, so Nashville's good. music city, so they want to have something that kind of pertains to them. Yeah. It's their own thing, so it's sure. like, oh, let's make a record of every goal that happens. That's, that's so good, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Well, one of the things we we always do live is when when musicians performing live and we're cutting him. The last song, we always get the audience to shout and cheer really loudly, so that they are also on the record. Yeah. That's quite nice, isn't it? Yeah. So we're going to link up to uh, Mike's uh, various websites in the show notes, and also to, of course xrayaudio.com you want to find out more detail about the whole culture of x-ray recording let us finish um, with a little bit of voice and music this is one of Alan Dean's homemade records I guess from the 60s this, this sums it all up I think for the, the homemade record here we go thanks very much to Mike and to Jim thank you and to Paul thank yeah you. thank you guys and see you down the road
Thanks very much to Mike Dixon, to Jim McGuinn, our guests today, the wizards of the recording that you can check out links to their work in the show notes. If you want to hear more uh, of those self-made records like the one we just heard, they're from Alan Dean's collection and you can check out our episode on the self-made record with Alan for lots of wonderful audio. You can also check out the episodes on the Extra Audio Project if you want to hear more about those Soviet records, Lathe Cut, onto X-Ray. And also, of course, our other episodes on other wonderful, half-remembered, half-lost countercultural stories. We're looking forward to telling some more next time. Check us out, www.bureauoflostculture.com. <laughs>